Welcome, everybody, back to our little show here. We have to bring something to you that we already promised a few days ago, a few weeks ago, when those of you who follow us closely will have stumbled about something that we don't normally do. We don't do book premieres. You know, we're not uh, Barnes & Noble or Waterstones or something like that. We're a music block. But uh, if we stumble about something or across something that is as interesting as Michael's book here, uh, then we are happy to join in all the hype for it. So, Michael, Michael Tao, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, Michael, maybe we should first of all explain a little bit about what your book is about, because I know that not everybody will have read the, the excerpt that we put on our website. Not, every, not everybody might have had the time to it. So maybe you explain your idea behind your book which is about extreme music. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the book is called Extreme Music. Um, and, you know, when people think of that, they, they might think it's just going to be a description of, you know, all sorts of different extreme music genres, like subgenres of metal, you know, uh, subgenres of hardcore punk, etc. But it's a little bit different. So I see the book as uh, exploring certain extreme concepts within the music world. Yeah. And sometimes that can be, you know, very, very, very esoteric, very, very arcane. But I I find myself very interested to, you know, in what happens when you take uh, an extreme idea and explore it to the to the very, very fringe. Mm. So for example, um, you know, there might there is a chapter on music that's very, very loud and very, very, very maximalist to the point that it's just sheets of harsh noise wall. Yeah. Or, you know, there's chapters on compositions, music compositions that are very, 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 very long or very, very, very short or music that's extremely vulgar. So just the these different extreme concepts and as they manifest in the music world and often at the very deep underground of music culture. That is also something that I can highly suggest as a reason for everybody to read Michael's book. Uh, being a music nerd myself, uh, and someone who thinks he has a pretty good knowledge of music. It's always fun to come across publications and records and labels, however you want to call it, which show you that you don't know shit. And when I read Michael's book, I was like, okay, I don't know anything, uh, which is always a cool effect. Um, so there was a lot of, there were a lot of artists that I first, first had to listen on or that I had to do some digging before I wanted to read on. And I think that's also a very good idea. If when you read Michael's book, take your time. Don't read it in one sitting. Don't read it like a regular book. Take your time, listen to the stuff that he's referring to because you will discover a heck of a lot of music. And to also show it maybe from like our always very genre oriented version, um, you will find cross references to, to Mertzbau, which might be one of the most prominent and most famous um, noise producers ever. We'll also have to talk about him in a moment. Um, but you will also see that there are tons of artists behind that one figure that many of us know. And, you know, it's, it's also interesting to see how you um, come up with the cross-references. Uh, if anybody has looked at our website, you will have seen that we have published um, one of the chapters on noise. And if we think about it, noise itself is a very difficult term. Michael, for example, let's take that as like one momentum. How do you define noise for yourself? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, and I imagine there may be many different technical definitions. I think in the book, I make reference to, you know, the idea of the signal to noise ratio, as we think of, you know, more organized sound versus extraneous or random sound. Um, and so I think how that idea carries through into the music genre of noise is you're talking about music that's um, you know, doesn't have the the typical hallmarks of music that you know, average people might listen to. So it might be highly abrasive, highly random, sheets of, of noise that are often quite harsh. 
And in the book, I explore it all to the logical, you know, all the way forward to the logical extreme of harsh noise wall, which is music um, that are just completely unchanging blocks of harsh noise, almost as though you have someone turn on a white noise generator, turn on a microphone, step out of the room, let it record for an hour, then come back and turn it off. And that's a harsh noise wall. Um, so I don't know if I'm exactly um, answering your question, but uh, you know, we're talking about a lack of, of what is would conventionally be thought of as organized sound. Yeah, and I think that's also very interesting. You know, um, basically, whenever we talk about stuff like like noise or punk, whenever we maybe even use genres, we have mm -hmm. to remember that they can always be reinterpreted in completely different ways. When Michael mm -hmm. looks at music and when he thinks about noise, one of the things that you do is you think about very complex ideas. I have a friend, whenever you would wake him up at three o'clock in the morning and we would say like, what is noise? He would say, Jesus, lizard and insane and now let me sleep. <laughs> right. Great. Band. Which is also fine, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's very interesting to also challenge your own notions of genres. Mm -hmm. Michael, is that something that you ever think about when you listen to music? Genres? Yes, absolutely. And I know genres are complicated because on one hand, they help us organize our thoughts about music, but on the other hand, they can constrain us or or kind of, you know, impose categories that limit um, creative freedom. And so I will say Unsane is mentioned in my book because I consider yeah. Unsane amongst the loudest and noisiest of the bands out there and love them. I also love the, the Jesus Lizard um, and that kind of noisy noise rock slash post hardcore to me is some of the most you know vitally enthralling heavy loud music out there um and it's in it and and it it often shares elements of noise that are seen in the music of pure noise yeah. artists like Mersbo, right um so i think um i think generally genres are important in terms of helping us organize our thoughts um, and think about music systematically. Um, and it can also help describe communities of people who are influenced by one another. But of course, we can't be constrained by um, by genre categories mm. entirely. Yeah. And it's also the way, um, I mean, Mertzbau himself said it wonderfully, and we all know of a famous quote, if noise is music that makes you feel uncomfortable, then pop to me is noise music. Um, and I think there is a lot of truth in there um and it's also interesting that a lot of people like me who grew up in the 90s uh we would of course always call up the holy trinity like jesus lizard unsane and probably helmet mm -hmm. um but when you look at those three bands and when you look at the songs they wrote you will see that a lot of them still play i don't want to say conventional music but a very very well organized music to use your term it very often mm -hmm. has a clear structure, whereas others like Mertzbo, KK Null, and others, they don't give an F about any kind of structure. Um, and still, many people would categorize both as noise. So noise, very difficult term, but I think that applies to a lot of them. You know, if we talk about grindcore, there is a huge difference between a goraphobic nosebleed and, uh, let's say, Volnificus. You know, huge difference. Still, both are called Rancore. Um, nerd question. Because I have a friend of mine who categorizes his collection according to genres. And we always fight about mm. How do you categorize mm -hmm. your your collection? Um, my collection isn't too disorganized a state to be categorized by, uh, <laughs> by genre. <laughs> um and it's just all, I mean, there is a recent move. And so everything is in boxes at the moment. Um, but it's a great question. Um, you know, uh, I, I think I, I think I do try to organize music, like whether it's in playlists or computer files or on the shelf, according to genre, but it's a fool's errand, right? You're just like yeah. every, every other thing you're like, does it belong here or somewhere else? Um, 
sometimes I like thinking about things in terms of like era or even the record label they they appeared on. Um, those are other ways to think about it. And and Thorsten, I apologize. I just wanted to check in terms of the the internet connection. Are you finding that it's laggy on my end? No. Okay. I just wanted to make sure because sometimes if, if you want to make sure that it's not lagging, then you can do the happy dance in between. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll do the happy so, dance next time. <laughs> so let's come to a few of the questions that have been sent in by people who saw our um yeah, our wish to get questions for you. And we have a few of them. Um, your PR man, Dan, and I know are going down. So we have 10 of them. Um, oh, wow. Great. How do you... Let's come up with the first one. I like that a lot. And it's already something that would make me sweat. Uh, how mm -hmm. do you specify the quality of extremeness from or of extreme music in a broad sense? For example, and that is good. I think the person who sent that in, he even gave us an example. For example, we can speak of Public Image Limited of the Flowers of Romance era as the band with quite obvious extreme qualities versus artists like Mertzbo or Bastard Noise. So how do you specify extremeness mm -hmm. in a broad I think it's a, I think it's a great question because... Um, extreme can mean di different things to many different people. In my book, when I refer to extreme, I'm, I refer to it in in sense of concepts, um, or maybe even another way of putting this would be the purity of a concept carried to its logical extreme. So that's that's different from just categorizing extreme as music that sounds very extreme or you know sounds very harsh or rapid or whatever. Um, I'm interested in exploring a sound concept taken to its most conceptually pure fringe. So another example of this would be electronic music, right? Mm -hmm. People might consider all sorts of things extreme in electronic mm -hmm. music. Dubstep could be considered extreme, you know, biggest bass drop of all time, however you want to put it. The way I looked at electronic music was looking at tempo. And so I was exploring the outer fringe of uh, music that has a very, very rapid beats per minute. So we think of 200 beats per minute. If you listen to music like that, it's like, it sounds incredibly extreme, but there are people who are experimenting with beats per minute of 500, 750, 1000 and beyond. So that's what I was curious. Like what happens if we take this idea to its most logical extreme? So I think that's the, that's the, that's the way I approach extreme in my book, but many different people might have many different ways of categorizing it. And, and I think that's, that's okay. When you are talking about beats per minute, I have to jump in with a question. Do you think that there is a certain number of beats per minute that if you cross that, it becomes inaudible? It does. I mean, it doesn't, the individual beats become inaudible, but once you reach a certain uh, beats per minute, they just it just um, it just starts to sound like a tone because yeah. each beat is serving as a cycle and and uh, yeah. and so you're hearing exactly. the tone. So at the extreme, there's a subset of artists known as extra tone artists yeah. who are specifically exploring that um, transition between beat and tone. But you're absolutely right, Thorsten. It, it you know it ceases to become individually audible beats. Yeah. Next question that we got from our readers. There are lots of cases when artists consciously drive the composition to a certain point, edgy or extreme. Mogwai with their debut album would be a good example, or My Bloody Valentine. How would you comment mm -hmm. on those? Sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think on one hand, those types of extremes are a little bit different from the ones that are covered in my book. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it's kind of just another way of thinking of the same thing, right? Taking a concept to its absolute extreme. So my understanding of My Bloody Valentine um, was um, that, uh, you know, they did a number of things that 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 could be thought of as extreme. Um, you know, Kevin Shields was really focused on the particulars on a very granular level of how the guitar yeah. sounded, was a perfectionist about that. Plus, just the the sheer quantity of overdubs to create these walls of sound could be seen as extreme. Um, so I, I think there are lots of ways that you could think about that music. 
I know Mogwai was famous for the, you know, this is a bit before when I was going to to shows, but um, for having the loudest live performances of any band, it would, you know, you'd go, you'd walk out of there um, just sort of uh, overwhelmed by the yeah. the massive yeah. sound. So there are ways in which these artists are um, are extreme on conceptual levels, and I think that's really interesting to explore. I always like to share, and I think I already did this twice or thrice here on our little interview series. Uh, my first encounter was with Mokwai was when they did an interview in German television, and they were asked, what is your aim in making music? And Stuart, with his wonderful Glaswegian accent, only said, oh, we want to be louder than Manowar. <laughs> and I'm very sure they did that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. Is that something that you also think of extreme? I mean, like we don't often have that, or we we don't have it as much anymore in in metal, but we still do have it. For example, in hip hop, this this um this volume war, like how loud can you make a record? Is that also some form of extremeness to you? So I start off. There is a chapter um, about extremes of loudness, right? Mm -hmm. And it starts off with a discussion of the loudness war, which is more of a technological war. Yep. using dynamic range compression to make music sound louder and louder. Um, and so I know that the band Sleigh Bells, as is covered in the book, they are ones who explored using dynamic range compression um, uh, as its own kind of artistic um, technique to see what happens if we explore this, this, um, this variable to its extreme. Um, and so, yes, I think that, and at the same time, my um the majority of the book is about recorded music and live performance is a completely separate thing right of course. Um, i think it's harder to carry forward loudness into a recording where you know i can just turn the volume knob up and down right yeah it, that as opposed to actually a live performance yeah. um so so yeah i mean in my opinion the bands that you identified earlier unsane helmet like when i listen to these bands these are bands that i love and it's because to me they have this feeling of loudness which maybe a better term for that is heaviness um but uh you know um in the book i look at loudness as kind of just being like what happens if all of the sound is raised to the absolute maximum and i do think the you know harsh noise or harsh noise wall is the the total um apogee of that um, but yes, there's many different ways to think about loud. What was the loudest concert that you ever went, been to? I think it was Acid Mother's Temple. Um, mm -hmm. this was years ago, but I went to an Acid Mother's Temple show and, um, and that struck me as being the loudest show that I ever went to. Although many years ago, I also went to, uh, I, I used to go to noise shows back when I was living in Montreal and. And there were some Wolf Eye shows that were pretty loud, as well as um, some more local noise bands um, of the era. And um, those were loud. But again, interestingly, right, Acid Mother's Temple, it's more organized sound. So in some ways, it just sounds louder when it's like organized sound carried to its absolute max. What's the loudest show you ever went to, Thorsten? Not to put you on the spot. No, 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 no. I, I have been thinking about that question because I, I was very sure that you would ask the same thing back. Um, when it comes to, I think one of the loudest was definitely Mokwai because yeah. I saw them in a small club, like 800, 900 people. Um, mm. And they played a very, very regular post-rock set. Wonderful set. But then you could see that at one point, shortly before the end, Stuart looked at everybody and it was like, okay, all systems go. And they created a, a wall of very, very ugly noise that mm -hmm. made me move back like two or three rows, which is very unusual for me. Um, but I did that at that moment mm -hmm. and it was really hard. Um, I once saw Indian Life. That was also pretty loud. Um, LLNN from Copenhagen. Shout out to my friends there. They were incredibly loud. And uh, I think anybody who has ever been to a Sun concert knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
but that would be that um i haven't been to i haven't been to too many extreme noise electronic sets i have to admit that and the ones that i've been to were usually the ones uh where the pa was not loud enough to do the whole thing justice oh yeah i forgot a few days ago i saw boris live here in our local club which is okay. uh, which is possible for 600 people and i still bet my ass that at one point not the pa was shaking but the vents at the top were shaking so that was incredibly loud sounds right and also very very cool <laughs> Fair enough. um let's yeah. come to a third question um what do you feel about the fact that these days extreme music almost becomes something like a trend. Mm, sure. Um, I mean, I think it all, I think it again, all, all um, boils down to definition of extreme. Um, and I agree. I mean, I think that internet, right? Uh, the way the internet is designed um, algorithm, algorithmically to fill a certain sensation itch um, it, it it makes sense that extreme sounds or extreme ideas um, are going to float to the top because um, they you know they they just hit easily um, and at the same time I think uh, it depends on what the definition is like I I, I I find it hard to believe that the average person um, is interacting much with genres like harsh noise wall or um, you know, found sound or uh, extra tone. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, like brief snippets of extreme sound would make sense as um, things that people could encounter on the internet and find titillating or or um, um, kind of immediately emotionally um, satisfying. So, yeah. But I, I, I wonder what they mean by a trend, like what types of extreme music would be considered trendy i still remember like 10 years or when 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 did sunbather come out from death haven heaven um mm. i remember that that was a trend over here in europe because a lot of normal newspapers were even talking about the record and uh, a lot of newspapers like even the times and also some german newspapers spoke about it in their culture uh pages um there right. was a moment when all of this black gaze, all or let's call it post-black metal, or however we want to call it, when that was popular in a way. I still remember yeah. people walking around in sunbather shirts, and I was like, did you really understand the message of it all? <laughs> but, and I guess, I mean, that's not that's nothing new, right? Like the death metal boom a, in the early 90s or, or the black metal scene in, uh, in Scandinavia um, was like, you know, big in the news because it's so scintillating. Um, so it makes sense. I guess there's always going to be kind of a public uh, fascination with yeah. uh, extreme forms of sound. Definitely. Um, in your book, you're covering not all of the extreme artists, um, but when it comes to research, what qualities of the music did you take into account for specifying what is extreme and what is not? Where did you draw the line? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, again, um, it, in some ways, my book was not looking for uh, music that sounds like, you know, specifically good or something that I want to listen to on repeat, but rather mm -hmm. um, the concept, the, the the idea behind the release. And so um, really, I, I, I was somewhat agnostic about how something sounds, uh, you know, the book doesn't emphasize descriptions of how music sounds that much, except in the service of describing the idea and what it means, which I think makes it a little bit different from from some other books, which tend to invest a lot of time and energy in describing things. Yeah. So in my book, um, what I wanted to do was understand what are the motivations behind the people who are creating this this unusual music? Why does it appeal to them? and trying to tell the stories behind them, the stories behind the people and the stories behind this unusual music. Um, so really, I was guided by the ideas and the stories behind them, as opposed to looking for music that sounds a certain way. Another very easy question, I guess, but also very interesting for everybody who sees the sheer volume of the stuff that you put into extreme music, the book. How long did it mm -hmm. take you to complete it? 
<laughs> it took forever. <laughs> um, took a very long time. Um, and so, uh, you know, before this, I'd been listening to experimental music and writing about it in a less organized fashion for many years, like since I was in high school. But I started this book, I think the first interviews were conducted in, in 2015 or 2016, but the book was sort of polished off in 2020. Mm -hmm. So unlike, you know, a lot of writers, they'll come up with a book proposal um, they'll submit it to publishers or through an agent, and then they'll, you know, a publisher will say, that's good, I'll give you an advance, this is the deadline, blah, blah, blah. That wasn't the approach I took. I just started writing this book for my own pleasure, um, uh, you know, in bits and pieces of free time, without a clear, with some ideas of who I would want to approach to publish it, mm -hmm. but without having any idea if anyone would be interested. Um, and if it didn't get published, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but you know, for me, I, I had to, I was inherently interested in the topic enough that it didn't matter that much. So to answer the question, somewhere in the vicinity of five to six years in spare scraps of weekends and evenings, um, you know, when, whatever time I wasn't working or doing other things. Um, so a long time, felt like a long time. How important was it for you to get the perspective of some of the people that you're talking about? Because you lose, use a lot of interviews and quotes. How important was their point of view? Yeah, I mean, that was the most important thing to me, right? Um, because the big, like, in a large way, I was approaching this book as an opportunity to solve mysteries, mm -hmm. right? there's this really there's this whole world of unusual and esoteric music out there what i sometimes call you know uh, unusual musical objects yeah. and they exist and often there's not a lot of information publicly available about what the story is behind them so wherever possible my goal was to say okay this, these things exist why 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 did someone create them right like what motivated them what was yeah. the story behind them so the book really is trying to uncover the stories and motivations behind all of this unusual music. I find that that's the most interesting form of, mm -hmm. of music uh, yeah. journalism, personally. Yeah. Did you also have to use translators or translations at some point? Um, did I... I mean, I'm... Well, yes, let's, ask right otherwise. Let's, let's, let's ask otherwise. I mm -hmm. guess that a lot of the interviews you did were written interviews, right? Some were written, some were, um, you know, phone or video. Um, so, yeah, sometimes, I, I mean, we would we would try to find ways. Sometimes I would, uh, I would translate interviews that were published in other languages. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, you know, I don't have access to... to um, translation services so i don't i didn't conduct any interviews mm -hmm. fully uh, with a translator um starting with the nine uh, sorry starting with the 80s is because that's the way the question starts starting with the 80s the large number or a large number of artists started incorporating elements characteristic for japanese artists that have been known for a very extreme version of music for a long, long time. And in this way, those artists created cross-cultural connections like Zorn or Discordance Axis. Uh, what, according to your opinion, attracted those people who come from a Western cultural background to incorporate elements from the East? Hmm. Good question. Um... I don't, it's hard to say. I mean, I think there's always been a bit of a, a mutual um, fascination between, like, particularly Japanese music mm -hmm. and American slash mm -hmm. European music, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, to, as a European, I have to say that I find those cross cultural references more between American and Japanese cultures than between European and Japanese yeah. cultures. You're, you're right. I mean, there's also like in in Germany, you would know best. There's like a, like there's a, a deep fascination with like rockabilly and country country music yeah. amongst yeah. a certain subculture. For right, 
So, so it's not exclusive to Japan. But I mean, um, you know, in Japan, um, there's a lot of people who collect, you're right, primarily American forms of music, things like rockabilly country, um, very, very American facing <laughs> or American forward music. Um, and um, in the 80s, I think maybe this started with the tape trading scene, right? Like oh, right. the noise artists coming out of Japan, trading with um, uh, artists in the States and uh, and um, Europe. Um, but I think there's just, maybe it's just because the two, the two cultures are so, um, like seem so different, at least in, in superficial ways. Mm -hmm. um that there's a fascination um a mutual fascination about kind of very different cultures and how their art what their art looks like yeah. um in the same way that people are interested in in the extreme ideas that that are explored in my book um it's a great question and not one that i'm an expert on i imagine there are like actual you know ethnomusicologists and academic people who could answer this question in a lot more sophisticated terms when I when I saw that question, I was hoping that you would answer it the way that I would. Being a history teacher, I have another explanation for that. So for the person who sent in that question, thanks for doing so. My explanation is very simple. Um, American Army. Uh, mm, the American right. Army, who, of course, had a huge connection to the um, Asian side of the Pacific. So there have surely been encounters and exchanges between um, American GIs and people from Japan, from um, the Philippines, Guam, you know, from all of those parts of the, uh, from America's point of view, Eastern Pacific, uh, Western Pacific Rim. Um, so I'm, I'm very sure that there has been a lot of interaction there. Because, and now I take up something that Michael has said, I see the same thing happening here in Germany or in Europe. Um, in Germany, especially, you can see that very, very well uh, in those parts where, for example, I live here in Bavaria, you see a stronger connection uh, to American music, rockabilly country and all of that, than, for yeah. example, in the northwest of Germany, where America has not been the... Um, the Allied occupational force after World War II. In the northeast of Germany, you see the British influence. So you have a huge northern soul community in Hamburg, yeah. Bremen, and all of those cities. Um, so I think um, World War II and its aftermath has some kind of historical connection to it. So yeah, just like Michael said, great question. Thanks for that one. Uh, we have two more. Um, these days, the music industry got changed significantly over the last, let's say, 10, 15 years. Uh, we can see some independent labels selling nearly as many records as major labels. Sub Pop, Matador, Epitaph, uh, just to name a few. Um, back in the days, those labels were making underground rock music. Um, how did these changes affect the landscape of independent music, according to your opinion? So how did independent labels selling a lot of records, how did that change the scene? Mm. Right. I mean, that's that's an incredibly broad question um, and can go back to, I mean, you know, historically independent labels, like in the 50s and 60s, a lot of music was released by independent labels and locals. And then things have shifted over time. I guess the the major label, um, the greatest period of major label dominance was probably from like the seventies through to the two thousands. I, I mean, I I think that um, yeah, the early again, ups and yeah. downs. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think the internet changed a lot uh, in terms of how people um, consume music and. Yeah. Um, uh, like I guess a lot of people wonder like what is the role of of record labels in this day and age and yet despite that there's an explosion of tons of small labels yeah um I think um I don't know I I feel I've always sort of taken I've I've thought of um, labels as being kind of like curators especially in today's day and age right you yeah. expect a, a specific type of sound from 
subpop or mm. um sacred bones or you know you name the, yeah. the yeah. label um and um i think because of the internet um there's a larger number of people consuming a larger quantity of different types of music um and so inherently like people may um be uh you know more broadly consuming from different labels as opposed to sticking what's put in what's marketed to them in major labels yeah um i wish i had something smarter to say about this again this might be the the providence of uh of someone academic who could put things a lot more into a lot more historical context no i think it's very a lot of it and i think that the internet has has a huge part to do with that i totally mm -hmm. agree with that um and something that we also should bear in mind is what is an independent label? We have to remember that, for example, Motown started out as completely independent. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a connection to a big label. And still Motown produced some of the most incredible stuff of the 60s and early 70s, being an independent label. And mm -hmm. for example, for Motown, that only worked because they basically had a band ready 24 7 so who would even come at at three o'clock in the morning and if necessary record a song um and the songwriters on contract exactly they and had, i think yeah. that is something that is also not to be overlooked um but again a, a huge question that we could probably talk about for hours especially about the notion of what is a label in the 2000s um for example, if we look at sub pop, what they are releasing nowadays is sometimes far away with it, with what they released mm -hmm. nearly forty years ago. Sub pop um, is maybe maybe not a not an example of a label with a specific sound because they've become so broad after starting off as the exactly. early grunge label, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's also shown that if you, I mean, like Sub Pop is still an independent label. And I think that is a very cool idea and a very cool thing. But it also shows that if you want to remain a, in a kind of independent label, that you also have to, I don't want to say go with the flow, but you have to at least a little bit adhere to popular taste. Mm -hmm. um, last one. While you are using the general term extreme music, do you see a difference in the use of this term in different cultures? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's hard. I don't know about different cultures, um, like geographically, because that would be hard for me to say. Um, but um, Certainly, um, like I think extreme music to a lot of people means extreme forms of metal um, or other extreme forms of rock music, um, like like grindcore, um, yeah. you know, de death metal, these genres that are very extreme, often in technical ways. Yeah. Um, whereas my, um, you know, my approach to this was, was different, right? It's more about conceptual extremeness. So part of me, um, wonders if extreme music was the right title for the book because it does like I, I worry that some people are misled and they think oh this is gonna be one thing and that's they're like why isn't why isn't power electronics figuring strongly into your book <laughs> you know a lot of these genres do figure into the book like grindcore uh like death metal like um power violence and, and everything yeah. um yeah. but really not it's not like a historical description of those scenes um it's more describing how they fit into the paradigm of extreme musical concepts um so um so i think it's used in different ways and i use one definition of it that might be different from someone else's and something that i would also add to that i think it is nearly impossible to write a chronology of extreme music because mm -hmm. uh where do you draw the lines of what is extreme where do you start where do you end um how deep do you go into that because i guess that for every decade you could write a thousand page book on that <laughs> yes yeah and in some like there are books about death metal there are there are great books about grindcore so part of me didn't want to just replicate things yeah. that already exist mm. um so i mean i think there's a lot of great books there about extreme music scenes that exist um and my book uh, I try to cover things that really aren't written about anywhere else. 
or at least where I would say as a reader that have not been covered in the way that you did it. So again, something that makes it very interesting. Um, Michael, first of all, thanks for all those details, but everybody who is on Veil of Sound doesn't get around the infamous quickfire round. Mm-hmm. And I've already spoken to you. You know the concept. Everybody who's listening to it, you know the concept. I don't repeat it. So let's just hit it. Um, I will give you six um, questions where you have to decide. Uh, let's start off with something easy. You have to choose between two Nirvana songs, Rape Me or Territorial Pissings. Territorial Pissing. Why? More abrasive. Okay. <laughs> Unsane. What would you which record would you rather put on right now? The self-titled record or this queen? This queen. I find it more heavier and louder. Ah, here we come to the loudness war. Aha. <laughs> Um, noise. What is it to you? Is it more tribal and primitive or more electric and constructed? Mm. First idea it's that both. comes both. Yeah, uh, it really is both. Um, which side, I can't which side imp- appeals more? Which side appeals more? Um, probably the, the, I forgot the word to use, electric and Constructed. Um, constructed, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Two masters in, in their respective genres. My Bloody Valentine versus Sun. My Bloody Valentine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, um, you know, even though I just earlier used more abrasive as a mm-hmm. <laughs> as a reason to like something over another, I think um, at heart, I you know the interplay between noise and melody melody uh to me um i, I think that that's uh, that's something that i'm i'm very uh, historically been very drawn to so i've invested a lot more time in my life listening to shoegaze mm-hmm. um and noise rock as opposed to drone metal post metal um etc and so it's just a i think it's just an aesthetic preference but one should probably not think that you don't listen to the second part, right? No, yeah, it's not that. It's just that I've listened to My Bloody Valentine a lot more than I've listened to some. I can see the melody thing, yes. Although we also should agree that whenever people who are not familiar with the music, they always say that Sun sounds like very very unconstructed and it's just the total opposite, right? So I think both in a way are constructed musical references. Mm-hmm. Not neither. I don't consider either band, like either genre of music better than one another. But I think um, when I, when I reflect on my personal, like the amount, the music mm-hmm. that I've listened to historically, um, definitely I've been, I've invested more of my time listening to shoegaze, post-hardcore, like things along that uh, axis um, than ex- you know extreme or abstract forms of metal, which I enjoy, but um, it's it's uh, it's a historical aesthetic preference for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's not what I meant. I meant like both John, both bands, Sun and My Bloody Valentine, are not making pure, unconstructed and un true, yeah. uh, unsequenced uh, noise. Both are very, very constructed in a way, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You have been talking about post-hardcore a lot. And mm-hmm. I know that that is one of those terms that could be overanalyzed to the to the extreme. <laughs> uh, two post-hardcore bands that have been shaping my personal preferences forever and ever. Glassjaw versus Boy Sets Fire. Um. Neither are bands that I've spent a lot of time listening to, and so I I can't even answer that question. When I think of, um, but I mean, this is the problem with post-hardcore, right? It is one of these nebulous terms that like means something and nothing. Um, And so I think like, you know, sometimes this type of music could be called uh, noise rock or alternative Mm -hmm. metal in the case Mm -hmm. of um, Helmet, um, one of of my faves. 
you know, even just indie rock, right? <laughs> the original uh, expression for this. Okay. So um, yeah, it, but like Thorsten, there's so much music in the world. It is. <laughs> there's just so much. I don't know how people manage to listen to it and have common common frames of reference, right? It, it only works if you listen to one new record every day. <laughs> Which I <laughs> if have I had time to last, do that. <laughs> I have been trying to do that for the last three years, and I would say, uh, let's say, two three years is like a thousand days, roughly, right? So I mm -hmm. would say, out of a thousand days, I was able to do that. Seven hundred, seven hundred and fifty. That's amazing. But it, it very often becomes a blur. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's the problem, right? Like how, like, it's hard to just keep track of that in your mind. Uh, it only but, works, uh, but I'm it only very works with spreadsheets. Right. Spreadsheets. I, I, I listen to stuff and uh, I, I have to put it in like categories for myself, like ratings. Also for yeah. our, also for our year event stuff that we always do. Um, that makes sense. Micro, microtonal music. Um, yes or no? Is that something that can attract your ear? Did you say microtonal music? Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, anything can attract my ear, so I'll say yes. Mm -hmm. Do I listen to microtonal music a lot of the time? Um, not um, music that identifies as being microtonal specifically, mm -hmm. but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think. Um, any new any sound concept is inherently interesting, and so I'm never going to say no to that. Mm -hmm. Last unless it's one. like yeah, racist music or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's <laughs> like unless it's something that's inherently offensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all. Also, always a question, right? Like uh, how? That is a good question for you. Uh, can you separate the art from the artist? Um, I don't. You know. Case by case, I, it's mm -hmm. a hard yeah, yeah. Uh, question to answer. I, I, in my, you know, I, I talked about this before in previous interviews, but in the book, I made a point of, like, there are bands that are, you know, um, are racist or otherwise offensive that that share commonalities with, for example, there's a chapter on unusual packaging, and there's some um, releases that have been put out by uh acts that I would consider offensive who have used unusual packaging concepts. So I just made the idea. I made the decision I wasn't going to include that stuff because I didn't want it in my book um but um uh so yeah um but your question about whether um about like separating the artist from the art is a is a, a really big question and mm -hmm. um I mean like it could be as simple as like um I disagree with this person politically because they're a capitalist and I'm a communist. Like, I don't know if that is something yeah, that know, is a reason to, to versus someone who's like highly offensive or, you know, saying something that is just beyond the pale. Um, anyway, I'm getting us off topic. I'm sorry to derail no, your, no, no, that is very, your that is rapid very fire good. round. No, 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 that, that is, that is a very good question. And it's also very di difficult. Uh, I still remember, um, a few weeks ago, my my little ten year old daughter came in, and I was just listening to um, to Kendrick Lamar, and she said, "Daddy, he's using a lot of f words and a lot of curses and swears a lot." And I was like, "Yeah, but he's for great." Oh yeah, you're right. And it's <laughs> like, on the one hand, the guy is amazing, and on the other, like, I'm sometimes using offensive language. But I know what you mean. It's difficult, right? Uh, we shortly. I still have one, but I want to know your opinion on that one. Uh, favorite label? Do you have something like a favorite label at the moment? Hmm. Um, that's a wonderful question. I know. Um, I can't. I, I mean, it's almost as hard as saying a favorite band. Um, mm. I've had. I, when I was young, when I was in high school, my favorite label was Matador Records, but that's okay. because I got. Um, a Matador Records compilation from a used mm. CD store. And then I got a Ninja Tune compilation, and that was my favorite label for a while. Mm. Um, but I think for me, um, I just love the how many labels there have been, how many of them have developed a, mm. a prominent aesthetic, um, mm. and how they figure into the history of music. So 
I feel like it's just it's just impossible to pick one that um um but I do like labels that establish a defined aesthetic and um it, you know labels like or ad or warp or mute right these these seminal labels that have designed a specific aesthetic and um built themselves around that so um yeah I'm sorry. Once again, I can't answer your question. What's oh, you your did. favorite label? First? You did. That is what I told you. <laughs> Mine. Um, uh -huh. it, it used. It definitely used to be sub pop in the early '90s. Um, then at some point, I still remember I had a huge Discord phase. Um, mm. Then you know there was this Equal Vision early mm -hmm. 2000s period where we basically everybody I knew was collecting Equal Vision. Hmm. Um, for a few years, it has been Pelagic, uh, Pelagic Records out of Berlin. Um, a friend of mine loves Dunk Records from Belgium, who do perfect post rock. Hmm. Um, the Flenser and Sacred Bones have had phenomenal years, have mm -hmm. to say that. Um, and of course, I have to give a shout out to my friend Philip from Switzerland. His Unfortunately, soon to be soon to soon to be defunct label, uh, elusive sound was an eye opener when it came to packaging and when it came to the ability of delivering records without a scratch or a crooked edge. So I've never had mm. any elusive sound record coming here with any flaw. That was amazing. Uh, last question. Uh, we both listen to a lot of music. How do you listen to music? Vinyl or streaming? Um, variable. Actually, I have a quite a quite a CD collection. So I, I actually happen to listen to CDs more than I listen to my vinyl collection. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, and part of that is because I just I reviewed music for so long in the like in the 2000s that you just accumulate and plus a lot of tapes, but actually my tape deck recently busted. I have to get it fixed. Um, I do listen to a lot of streaming and I, and lately I think this is because, uh, you know, work is very busy and um, I have a, a young child. Um, I listen a lot to uh, WFMU, the New Jersey radio station, mm -hmm. um, which um, they, they just have, it's a free form radio station with a lot of, really interesting and esoteric programming. And sometimes it's easier to just put that on and play it and have it playing during the day than to select out things. Um, but, you know, the internet obviously um, is both terrible in some ways and wonderful in others. Absolutely. So the ability to just pull things up at, at, um, at you know, I want to listen to this and to pull it up is a very hard to beat um, convenience. Yeah, a availability, right? So, Michael, thanks for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, for everybody out there, uh, if you want to do some digging and if you want to know a little bit more about concepts of extreme music, go uh, go and get yourself a copy of Michael's book. It's out in a few weeks uh, on Feral House. So do that. Michael, your chance for any last words. Nothing exciting, just... Thank you so much, Larson. It was a real pleasure chatting today. Uh, you know, the questions that everyone submitted and that you have were just so wonderful. And, and uh, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to do this. Thank you very much, my friend. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye now.